Welcome to The Vinyl Preacher, your weekly podcast where we talk about the Bible and make a playlist. I'm Matt Cato, pastor at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Zach Barris. I am the pastor of Lutheran Campus Ministry at the University of Colorado Boulder. Well, Zach, last week we uh, we broke down the <laughs> our initial Coachella reactions. Oh, that's uh, huge. It was, it was huge. It was huge. I uh, I really I need an annotated playlist. I'm I'm still. It, it's all just word soup to me. Still, I can't mm. wait to find my new favorite artist from this list, but uh, not there yet. I I've just downloaded to my phone because I don't have I don't do the data streaming on my phone. Uh, the official playlist. Well, it says Coachella 2023 official playlist, but it's made by someone called Tuna Soup. So maybe there's a better Spotify playlist <laughs> to listen to. But. <laughs> Uh, I've gotten into a little bit of uh, the old Rosalia, who it turns out I, I know some of the songs because they're on TikTok. Nice, nice. And Your that chicken uh... teriyaki song, like that—that that was familiar when I got to it. Chicken teriyaki. She's a cattle. She's from Bar- Barcelona. She's Catalonian. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. You are so much more plugged into pop culture than I am. Oh, that's what everybody says about me. <laughs> It's because I voluntarily give the Chinese all the information I have. <laughs> That's what TikTok is. That's evidently understanding. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I don't put very many classified documents there. What uh, What else do we have to talk about? Uh, big news mm. in the Lutheran the Lutheran Church world. Oh yes, uh, Lutheran School of Theology moving into the catholic seminaries building which uh a friend of the pod former guest of the pod rob sailor uh who we drove out of the lutheran church um his his post said well reformation's over (laughs) good stuff oh my gosh matt we were both feeling things when we saw that yesterday Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's uh yeah, I guess you know they'll be a little closer to the lake, so that's a plus. That's, that's good. That's good. Um, other side of the train tracks, which always felt like another universe. Oh yeah, there are train tracks yep. that run like through Hyde Park, friends uh-huh. uh, in Chicago neighborhood in Chicago, and uh, it felt like as a person who lived on the west side of the tracks, I never went anywhere socially on the on the east side of the tracks. <laughs> No, yeah. No, that's just how you get to the, you try and get to the bike path. You know, that's where you yeah. go. Mm-hmm. Or promontory point. Always, mm-hmm. always Out the, Yeah. I took a class in that building one time. It's a nice yeah, building. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. It's I an office building. There. Actually, I took a class there on Judaism. So I took a class on Judaism at the Catholic seminary. It was taught by a Jewish rabbi. They just used the building. I, great. I don't know. Uh... I'm going to say it. I have a podcast. Uh, I took the class there and I was, I enjoyed it. I I think it was a good seminary class because I got to learn what I wanted to learn at the depth that I wanted to learn it. Uh, like it was kind of choose your own adventure. I did not come away impressed with the academic rigor of the Catholic Theological Union uh, because it was the only time in my seminary career when a professor was just like, this is amazing what you have done. <laughs> You didn't believe them? No. 
And it was my last year, so I knew that wasn't true. You know, like. Uh, <laughs> oh. Wow. So many things to mourn. I think we're mostly mourning. I, I posted a little bit about it on the Facebook. Uh, not as cleverly as Rob's thing. Uh, but if I have an actual serious take, it is like, it's that, oh gosh, Matt, that we like, this seems to be a thing that, that the church is doing these days is that one of the options is to sell your, when things aren't going well, to sell your property in order to be innovative and to think strategically or something creatively. Um, and that at least, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a researcher, so I've not done the research in my anecdotal experience. Um, the odds of like successful innovation and creativity, like working and having a new thing be birthed that lives and impacts folks for a long time, uh, is pretty, uh, long. Those are long odds. And that, so, so my experience as a person who cares about LSTC and had a or cared about it, right, or was impacted by it, right, is that it mostly feels sad because it looks like, in my experience, right, that's usually a marker on the way to the death of a church or an institution. Um, so that's not really yeah. an upper or whatever, but, <laughs> you know, that's reading the signs of the seasons, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely is a, a death of some kind. I mean, my... My other, I mean, just just related to that, I think it's just, and they've been going down this path for a little while, but I think, you know, the death also of just this sort of residential um, living and learning and community experience, which maybe is not practical anymore. Maybe is not just not possible anymore. Like there's, there's a lot of realities that just may, may make that not possible. But I, I do think that is a thing that seems to be ending that nobody seems willing to name as like an actual loss, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, so I, I guess that's my biggest disappointment is that I wish we could name that as a loss instead of feeling the need to like, just be <laughs> purely positive all the time. Oh, this is going to be great. It'll work out. This is exactly the move they needed to make. Yeah, um, I'd say, you know, like, I don't think the <laughs> the classes were not the most important part of seminary. Um, right. Yeah. That, that it was that living together, learning together, going through that experience together with a community uh, for listeners who aren't intimately familiar with the details of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. The way it used to be is uh, there was essentially kind of like a half a block where the building was with the library and the school and everything was contained in this essentially one building that was kind of three buildings, kind of four buildings. And then across essentially an alley is like a half block of apartment buildings. Uh, and so your like whole life was right here, like on this block, even Jimmy's was kind of a part of the block that uh, there was this like known world that was full of years and that, that consumed your life. Um, and that going through those experiences with a community of people uh, was certainly more impactful, I think, than was at least as impactful as any academic thing I did. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. And I would always tell folks that I felt like the city of Chicago was also as much a classroom as the classroom. So I can see like, you know, there, yeah, I, I, I can see ways you could adapt and, and change, but I just think that like, yeah, that can, that living in community piece uh, was so important. I, I do like, I mean, it's not like, <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't know how to put it. I don't think either of us are like putting our heads in the sand about financial realities and just the fact that we live in a shrinking church. Like, I think even when we were in seminary, we could see like there's like seven or eight Lutheran seminaries (laughs) for this relatively small denomination. Like, it's probably there's probably some redundancy. Um, And now it's just, you know, now it's just coming for us. Uh, But I think, but, you know, it just seems to be such a, I mean, it's such a reality. Our, our church is certainly getting, getting smaller and we should talk about that more <laughs> rather than just pitching this like, Hey y'all, if we just innovate, we'll grow again. Yeah, innovate our oh, way we, out of this. We're not just so. <laughs> hey, like what innovate? Innovation has not been a successful uh, industry that the church is a category that the church is engaged in. Right. Like, and I don't think, um, we spent any time at all acknowledging like our inability to innovate, like, and, and saying like, how is this innovation going to be different? Right. That, that should be the question I think, right. Like we're going to innovate and be creative. Um, but here, like, how is this going to be different than all the other, you know, like our, our dismal success rate of new starts. Um, right. Like our innovation and creativity department is not successful. Um, statistically speaking. Um, the, the thing I find frustrating, perhaps most frustrating during in this decline of, of mainline Protestantism uh, and the ELCA in particular is it's the ecclesiology and our like fake ecclesiology that, <laughs> that's the problem, I think, right? Like innovation and creativity is needed at the seminary level, right? Like that's an... That's a sector of the church that needs creativity. Uh, I don't think it's going to be nearly enough for individual the way it's happened because it falls on the, in, the individual institutions to innovate, right? Because the the way the structure set up is not that right. Like you said, like we've all known, everybody's known it forever. There are too many seminaries, uh, and the really obvious answer to innovate or to pivot or to adapt is to have less seminaries. And that is the last thing that our system is set up to do because no one wants their seminary to close. Um, And so instead of doing a thing that actually fits what we need, right, we're stuck with this, you know, there's a coat closet on the fourth floor in Chicago. You can go to, um, there's uh, the back hall of of a a small Lutheran college. You can get a seminary degree, like uh, instead of, thinking more holistically. And that happens, I think, at the congregational, like we're congregationalists, but we pretend that we're not congregationalists. Um, and we can't make, we can't do effective big picture strategic thinking as a church. Yeah. How do you, how do you see, um, how do you see the innovation happening? How does innovation happen in a positive way? Great. Great question. Um, yeah. So there's a, a move. A part of this comes from my campus ministry background where, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I heard a lot more of like, we got to, we just need to sell this building and then we'll be freed up from this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and typically yeah. that's a death knell for the ministry, right? Like that's not... <laughs> People dream that that's going to be successful, right? But you're giving up your your best asset, um, and and things don't like it. Just doesn't work. Like that's not yeah. how we. I can't point you to any successful ministry that did that. Um, it's essentially giving up and then having 
either paying off debts or having a pot of money um, that you're not equipped to, to fully utilize. Uh, increasingly, though, there are more creative ways that it's being done. Um, I think it's important that you, you're not in the best spot to do creative and innovative things when you're desperate and out of options, uh, right? Which is a thing that doesn't make me feel good about what LSTC is doing because they announced that they were selling the building and then everybody's like, okay, we're being innovative. Well, what are we doing? Where are we going? What's the plan? And they're like, well, we don't have a plan. Uh, <laughs> doesn't give me a lot of confidence that like you're in a great spot, right? You're just doing what you need to like, Communications wise, it sounds like you're desperate and doing whatever it is you need to do to continue to survive um, versus can you get far enough ahead of the curve? So actually here at St. Aidan's where I'm at, they're having some uh, big picture conversations about their property and what they might want to do with their property and, and, and seeing it as a resource to be utilized and leveraged uh, when they don't need to get like when they have plenty of other options and they're still a pretty mm. vital congregation, right? Uh, you got to get ahead of it, which is hard to do for a church, right? To to get engaged in those conversations when it's not your only option, <laughs> um, because then you can leverage them and you have something to like grow as well into the new thing. So in campus ministry, what that looks like, I think, right, is working with like they did in Austin, Texas, working with a developer there, where they were able to get out of an old collapsing building uh, and get new space built for them. Uh, they gave up. I'm not sure of the details, right? How the kind like how it actually worked up. I, I think they probably lost. Um, I don't know whether they sold the air rights to the units. It's a high-rise residential building, and in the ground level is a brand new campus ministry center. Um, and so you've leveraged it in order to get something that actually helps you do ministry, versus like completely just like throwing the thing that you're doing into the trash because it's not working and you're screwed. Um, once you get to the end, like it's. It's the, like, I mean, it happened locally with a church, right? A church um, had property and we benefited from it. They uh, they were, uh, I think you could say now dying, um, dwindling in, in terms of uh, uh, worship attendance and members and energy and all that kind of stuff. I had a very valuable property and sold it and uh, used the funds to relocate to another part of town um, with an idea that they were going to be a very particular kind of like um, uh, church, like progressive-y kind of church thing. Um, and I think it hasn't worked in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think you can, and you'll be able to look back on that and say that that was just one step in like the death of the congregation. Um but that it was probably too late and that selling the property solved problems instead of like helped you do ministry um, directly. And maybe that's it, right? Like you need problems to be solved in order to do ministry, but when it's primarily about solving these problems you have and is not an actual thing that like, that helps you do, there's not a positive thing. Like it needs to be positive more than it's negative, like erasing negative. You know what I mean? What if you just talk about it like it's positive? <laughs> <laughs> then you've got a decent communications person guiding your strategy. <laughs> because if you talk about it like it is, 
it further dooms. Nobody ever says like, well, we're doing this because it's our only option and we're not innovating. <laughs> like we're thinking inside of the box. Nobody says that. But it doesn't make yeah. it true just because you say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is, it is hard work. I mean, I think even in the, even in the congregation, we feel it. I mean, I, we're, this is the time of year when we do our budgeting and our financial reports. And it's just always a reminder to me, like, it's super expensive to maintain a building and a full-time staff person uh, and some part-time staff people. Like that just already is expensive. And when your congregation is pretty small, even if it's vibrant, um, that math doesn't always add up. So um, it doesn't mean you're not doing good ministry. It's just like, it's the the math of it uh, is sometimes really challenging. Um, but I, I also think, think neglect- like, yeah, no, go for it. Well, but I think, I, I think for me, some of the innovation too comes from like, <laughs> I don't know how simple this is, but like comes from stability. So like stability is super boring, but if you are able to like have a structure that is relatively stable and healthy, then you have the freedom to do some, to take some risks mm-hmm. and to do some things within that. It's just, it sounds super boring to be in like a traditional congregation with a congregational structure, but, and yet like when my congregation's healthy, I can like take risks, you yeah. know, like, um, but even then it's hard to, I mean, you're talking about congregation, like getting ahead of things and planning ahead. And this is really like, sometimes it's just week to week here, you know? Um, so trying to carve out that time to get out of things is, is a challenge. It's certainly not easy. I think in the math of, of figuring all that stuff out, like, I think we've, there's been a little bit that there's a, it's been trendy to be neglectful of the importance of a building. As a person without a building, I am uh, typically pretty super envious of folks who have buildings because it's an important piece of that stability uh, that we have. And like we all think back to the children's sermon, you know, that the church is the people and not the building and think that's supposed to be the right answer. And, (laughs) you know, it is, but that's buildings are important. And yeah, they can be critical for students because what they you can either build relationships with students through humans, right? In which case I'm, I'm fairly limited because I can only maintain relationships with so many people and they got to kind of like me, right? Versus another model of campus ministry that's center-based is people really build relationships with with the building um, and that it becomes a home and a space. And that that's, I don't think that's bad, right? Like that, that, that is an important tool to help you do ministry. And so when you decide to move or to sell or to do whatever, you need to take that into account, like, because people have built, and if students have done it, right, and they can build really deep relationships with a space, physical space, uh, in in four years or so, uh, you know, the person who spent 50 years going to this building, um, to expect them to be as connected to what it is you're doing in a new space as they were in the old space, I think is, um, is wishful thinking. There's, yeah. a, there's a price, there's yeah. a price to that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. When I and when I say like a building's expensive, it's it's not uh it's not just being negative, it's just naming that reality and then figuring out, okay, how do we how do we address that then? Like um are we using the space? Like are we are we sharing the space? Um what just what does that look like? I, I think there are ways to be strategic, but but it's also true. Like it's not <laughs> you just gotta mm-hmm. figure out how to deal with it, you know? And maybe these places can become, I mean, I, I'm not going to open a whole new avenue of, uh, of what, 
what St. Anne's is doing. But, you know, I look, I'm like, how do these places, you know, having a church, having a building that just exists for the Sunday worship service um, as important as much as I would say the Sunday worship service is the heartbeat of the community. Um, the building's too expensive for a small congregation to like, it's got to be. A, and, I, and I think even in terms of mission, like, okay, in what ways is this a community center the rest of the week? You know, in, in what ways is this a meeting space, both for our ministry, but also for people in the community? Um, and are, are we maximizing that? So anyway. And that's part so, of St. Aidan's thinking, I think, as well. Like, is, you know, you've got this giant space that, you know, like like many congregations, was built for way more people than worship there now. And you only use it one day a week for part of the day. Um like that's a lot of resources to put into that, right? And uh, uh, that's an important space to have for Christians who are worship centric and stuff, right? But are there interfaith ways, right? Like uh, there are Jewish groups that, especially in the high holidays, need big spaces uh, for lots of people, and it doesn't happen on Sunday. So, is there a way you can share that space for that, right? Like that. Here in our in a college town, we've with the music school. There are uh, everyone's always desperate for concert spaces. Um, <laughs> is there a way that that like space itself can be utilized as is uh, more efficiently than once a week? How do you feel about tailgating space? Tailgating space is a central part of <laughs> the mission of this finish. Um, he essential you you might think tailgating season is over zach but uh in february nascar yeah. is coming to town so oh they're running in in the coliseum again they're doing That's the coliseum so again so i don't know i don't know people so here fun. talking about selling some parking I, maybe i don't know yeah for sure do you do yeah. you have experience with nascar that was not a thing that i have ever but you know we gotta get I, chris hevner back on the podcast because uh, he <laughs> yeah. is a NASCAR enthusiast. I've never been to a race, but I grew up in Lincoln County, uh, yeah. which is right there connected to the center of the NASCAR world. Uh, lots of old, old-timey uh, NASCAR drivers were Lutheran, uh, at least on the rolls of Lutheran congregations, including, most importantly, St. Uh, Dale Earnhardt was uh, a really? Lutheran there. Yeah, they went to a Lutheran church because that's it connects with like the really Lutheran part of North Carolina is right there. Uh, and so technically I am related to Dale Jarrett, who is a former NASCAR champion, Winston Cup at the time. I don't know what they call it these days. Uh, my great grandfather, his second wife, who's not my great grandmother, her first husband was uh, Ned Jarrett, who is um, Dale's father, but she's not Dale's mother. So. There you have it. Pretty deeply Amazing. connected. I got cousins and friends who work with the race teams and have worked for the race teams. Um, one of my good friends in high school, her dad was like good friends with Dale Earnhardt. So, wow. So he died while I was in high school and stuff. So, yeah. It was a whole thing. Yeah. Family. That was at, hmm, yeah, Dale Jr. <laughs> so, Dale Earnhardt. Did you know where we were going here? But let's, let's do it. Son of Dale Earnhardt was dating a girl at my school in high school, and they were like the big celebrity couple because uh, Dale Jr. is Ju- Dale Jr., and, but she was a celebrity in her own right. She was Lucy Parker, uh, who was the daughter of professional fisherman uh, Hank Parker. So he had it was like one of those like Sunday morning TV shows and stuff. Hank Parker. 
TV show guy. So they were the power couple at the time. They didn't make it. Uh, I've seen on Facebook that Lucy's married to somebody else. Uh, Dale is not my friend on Facebook, so I don't know. But he seems like a good guy. Always. Yeah. There you go. Well, yeah. This has been a good episode of... Um... Talking ricin. You go to the rice? <laughs> you go to the rice? We're going to connect this to the text somehow. Somehow, some way. We'll get Chris There's on because I've got. I, I don't I don't like NASCAR anymore, man. Um, <laughs> anymore? Yeah, of course. Oh I my gosh! There's a whole. Oh my gosh! We're we twenty four minutes in. Zach. We're twenty. Uh, we're no, twenty four minutes far in. I don't <laughs> like NASCAR. Um, but, we're gonna we're gonna revisit with it. We're gonna revisit this before NASCAR I'm comes to LA. Way into F one right now, uh, and it's so much better than NASCAR. And it has very little to do with the racing itself. There are so many things that you could fix. We're getting Chris on because I don't like the playoff, the chase, whatever they call it now. There's like a playoff in NASCAR, which is the dumbest thing ever. Like, so there's a race going on within the race. So winning doesn't really matter. There are too many teams. There are 45 like drivers in a race. How are you supposed to keep up with that? Like, I don't. And no longer there was the black hat and what they had. The, they did the wrestling. They got to embrace the wrestling part of it again because. Uh, that's what it is, right? Like I don't, I don't understand anything that you're talking about. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll get Chris on or any other Good. NASCAR head slash Good. auto enthusiast. And we'll, uh, we'll get it figured out. Good. This is, this is important. That's this is all part of my do Matt. We're going to Coachella in the spring in the fall. We find a NASCAR race and it's uh, the vinyl preacher goes to a NASCAR. It's the same thing as Coachella, right? Is it? You camp, you bring the RV, we'll, we'll hang out in Chris Edner's trailer. He's got a little camper that he takes to all the races and they stay. And you go watch qualifying one day and practice and all that kind of stuff. And eventually you get to the main event and Beyonce comes out and they do the race. Wow. <laughs> wow. I Amazing. would suggest that we go to the Lady in Black, Darlington, uh, South Carolina, and or uh, Bristol or, or Martinsville or something like that. One of the, the fun ones. All right, good. Not the super speedways. That should be. That's part of my sabbatical. I'm just gonna kind of. It should be part of your sabbatical. They race in the really, summer. That's the part, I'm going to that part of the country. It's gonna be great. Bristol. It's Bristol. <laughs> yeah. You're going to Appalachia. It's in the middle. It's Bristol, Tennessee. <laughs> they play football games inside of that uh, racetrack sometimes. Uh, Tennessee's played Virginia Tech there. Uh, it's wild. It'll be great. Okay. Good. Good. All right. Uh, what? Uh... What are we on? Third Sunday after one of the best ones. Fifty. Uh Isaiah chapter nine, one to four. There will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God, man. That just describes, I think, the way that we're uh, feeling about our seminary's move right here. Just this Mm -hmm. kind of exultation and rejoicing. (laughs) It's it's wonderful. The innovation to come will be great. 
Tell us about Naftali. Now, it's that we registered in 2006 on carbon paper that makes me skeptical of <laughs> LSTC's ability to be innovative for you. Um, True. <laughs> so this is super up my alley, Matt. This is 8th century BCE. It is fantastic. Uh, so uh, what's being referenced here, I'm not sure if this is Isaiah 1, 2, or 3, but it's referencing that dynamic. Uh, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, if you look at the map, uh, they are northern provinces. So they're in the north of Israel. They're up around. They're actually both north and slightly northwest of the Sea of Galilee. So they are up there. Uh, so that's what we're talking about here. That's been referenced. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, which is referencing Dor or Dor, D-O-R, which is a village uh, along the uh, Mediterranean. Uh, the land beyond the Jordan, which is uh, Megiddo, I think it is which is another northern uh, territory on the west. No, land beyond the Jordan is uh, uh, Gilead, which is to the east of, of, that, of the Jordan and stuff. Uh, and then Megiddo, which is another territory in the north. And so what this song is about is remembering that in 733, which is before the big fall of the north, right? North completely falls in 721, and there is no more Israel. There's only Judah. But in 733, the Assyrians, which are uh, the big empire to the north of them, uh, come down and they take these lands. They take uh, the land, the way of the sea. They take the land beyond the Jordan. They take Galilee of the nations. And so this is the promise of overthrowing the Assyrians, uh, which I think is an important part of of this. Uh, it references the day of Midian down there, which is a, a scene from uh, Judges in which uh, the Midians are from, the Midianites are from Midia, uh, Midian, Midian, whatever. They're from the south. That's the main thing, south of Judah. And uh, uh, oh gosh, what was his name? Gilead, Gil, G, G word dude, uh, leads the army of Israel and drives them out after they'd been occupied by the of the Midians for a long time. And he does it with like a surprise attack. They play trumpets and stuff and just scare them, essentially. It's a fun thing to read. The Judges 7, you should go look at it. They like break jars and just make a bunch of loud noises. And that's enough. <laughs> so the Midians perhaps weren't the greatest of warriors. Um, and then they use swords to cut them into tiny pieces. But uh, this is very political, right? Like this is not a story about... Um, this has direct, you know, it's not even tones, right? This is talking about vanquishing hope coming to people who are oppressed by a foreign occupier, by the Assyrians, and that one day they'll be driven away uh, and that you'll get to be your own free people again. Good stuff. We didn't do all that research. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Love some 8th century prophecy. Bad news. Uh, 721 is coming and the entire North will fall. But in just 150 quick years, you'll be right back home. Which is five generations in the ancient Near East. <laughs> wow. Also, a lot of light imagery here, even though mm -hmm. for some reason I felt like this was... Like, do we also read this at Christmas at some point in the Christmas season? Or an epiphany? It sounds like, like it. Really, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. It seems like we repeat that. Um, but but also in the uh, time after time of epiphany debate, looks like a lot of light imagery here. This feels like epiphany season. Feels like that's the imagery we got. I mean, I think it is epiphany season, right? 
Depends. Depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested because uh, he was criticizing the government, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called uh, Peter or Rock. And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, son of thunder, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, thunder, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, who was called thunder, and followed him. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people of the gospel of the Lord. Amen. Praise to you, Christ. It's uh, yeah, a lot going on there. There's a lot going on here. So um, this picks up right after the temptation of Jesus, which we're not going to get until the first Sunday in Lent. Mm. So we get some of that stuff out of order a little bit, but um, we did recently at the baptism of Jesus. So we get a little bit of John. And I think that that, that connection to John, um, we don't, uh, we don't always see that as clearly, but Matthew makes it pretty clear here that, that the story picks up. Like, it's like, that's the activation point when Jesus heard mm-hmm. that John had been arrested. That's, that's the cue for Jesus to then um, do something new to start a, to start a new chapter in his ministry. Um, and then the other connection there is from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, which is the exact thing that John the Baptist was proclaiming just a few yeah. chapters ago. It's the same line. Um, so even though Jesus is going to do a new thing, um, there's this, there's this passing of the torch, a passing of the baton. I like it, Matt. Um, it's always interesting to me, at least when Jesus is quoting uh, the Torah or the scriptures, right? And so he's quoting Isaiah here, which is why we get that Isaiah, I suppose. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, across the road by the sea. But it's a slight misquote. Mm. Um, and it's not a misquote in the sense like the words are wrong, but that he uses those lands, the land of Zebulun, Naphtali, the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, um, which is the end of a thought in Isaiah before you get to the people who sat people who sat in darkness and he uses it to title the book. So interesting to see that Jesus is, uh, I don't know how knowingly or unknowingly here. Uh, interesting to see Jesus is that there is some like remixing of the tradition here, perhaps mm-hmm. as a way to look at it. Uh, Jesus is using the old thing and just remixing it a bit for his purposes, which I think connects probably to, to the idea here that Jesus is using the exact same words as John. And that then like the thing to note, the subtle note, uh, is that I will make you, if you read the NRSV, follow me and I will make you fish for people. 
is a slightly inaccurate transition in that it's not a, a, a verb, right? It's an adjective or it's a noun. Yeah. Uh, literally in the in the reading, it says, I will make you a fisherman or a fisher for people, for humans. And so there's a continuity there. That's the important note in that translation, I think, right? That they used to be fishermen and now you're still fishermen, but you're just doing it in a different way. You're fishing for humans. Uh, but some things stay the same. And that's a thing that I see throughout these texts, right? This connection with the tradition, uh, but also sort of a remix on top of it. For sure. There's a lot. It's it's a lot. It's a lot going on. There, <clears throat> there is. And I... It, yeah. mm, mm, go ahead. <laughs> No, it's just it's one of these two part uh, two part gospels, mm-hmm. right? Where Jesus like uh, there's this coming out party for Jesus where he begins to proclaim, um, but then also he begins to build his movement. He begins to recruit people and to call them, um, and they make these pretty radical radical changes in their lives. Immediately leaving their nets, leaving their families, leaving their livelihoods, leaving their responsibilities. Um, yeah. <clears throat> It is interesting to me, Matt, that he marks the beginning of the new chapter in his ministry. Uh, Jesus heard that John had been arrested, and he retreats. Yeah. Uh, he withdraws to Galilee. And that is a thing that in the past year or so that I've really like noticed uh, or is the way that Jesus engages like practical realities. Uh, that like It's not good for Jesus to be around when he's like, one of John's guys when John has been arrested and is about to be beheaded. Do you feel like there's a little bit of like <clears throat> Jesus withdraws for strategic reasons, but then Matthew's like, guys, it's a good move. Don't worry. It's because it's to fulfill this prophecy. It has nothing to do with the threats that he's facing. It's just to fulfill this prophecy. Don't worry. You know, like Matthew's. <laughs> uh, I don't think that Matt, because here's the part that I'm into. Like, this is my, this is one of my things, Matt, like Jesus never really talks uh, smack about the Romans, right? Like, because it's a bad idea to do that. But then he's quoting Isaiah, which is directly about overthrowing the Assyrians, right? Like one plus one equals overthrow the Romans, right? Like that's, I'm giving a lot of that this week as we read it, right? Is that there's the threat to the Romans, is a part of this and that perhaps that's what this like he healed every cured every disease and every sickness among the people perhaps you know that's just accommodating for like the weakness of the retreat but perhaps it's also saying like oh jesus actually has the power to do it like he's going to overthrow the romans because we know it's not it's not an empty threat in the scriptures right because the assyrians eventually are overthrown they are like we get to go we get to go home like we this is fulfilled already and you're saying that this is going to be fulfilled again, I think is a direct threat to the Romans. Yeah. 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 And I think the way that that happens to bring that back around. So, so you start with this passing of the torch from John to Jesus. Then Jesus immediately begins to share that with, to share that, that call, that responsibility, that work with, um, with these disciples. And then by the end of the gospel, I mean, it's most clear in Mark's gospel, but it's, it's true in all of these, that then the torch is passed to, to us, right? Like this torch just continues to be passed and shared. And there's, there's a movement that's built so that, you know, yes, Jesus is like 
the center and yet it's also not just jesus and like we're sitting here just watching this drama unfold it's like we're getting pulled into this drama in the same way that jesus picks up the torch and passes on the torch um that movement continues i think that's i think that's one way you can connect it to the the present take this this ancient story and i hear the monty python this week matt uh Uh jesus heard that john had been arrested and he said run away Oh, do it. Do that in your sermon. Brave Sir Jesus ran away. He bravely ran away. What are we listening to? Man, I got such good stuff. I've been listening to good stuff lately. Um uh, I don't know why I ended up on the on the kick here. So I'm I've mentioned it before in the podcast. I am a proud subscriber to Sirius XM radio in that I'm not sure I've ever paid them any money for the subscription I've had for two years now. Uh, but I enjoy it. And there are a ton of different channels, right, Matt? There's a YouTube channel that I don't listen to. There's a DMB channel. Uh, I've got Tom Petty in my favorites. There's 90s on 9, which is one of my favorites. Uh, but I have noticed, and I am ready to champion a new cause, Matt. There is not a Natalie Merchant channel. There's not a Fair oh, channel, which seems like an obvious oversight. And I'm going on the record here. I'm willing to DJ it 24 hours a day uh, in order to get our Lilith Fair Lisa Loeb, uh, Natalie Merchant. That's how I did it. The Lisa Loeb 60 songs that explain the 90s got me into this uh, a run of, uh, of uh, 90s women with guitars. Uh, there should be a 90s women with guitars XM station, Matt. It makes sense. I, I support this. Cosign. Right? It would be it'd be on my first row of favorites right there. Uh, I put it up. Put it well above NPR. Uh, I'm going to put San Andreas Fault on there, which is just, it's so good, Matt. It's so good. And Tiger Lily is an album that's so good. And it starts with that. And it just punches you in the face with that acoustic guitar. Uh, And uh, lyrics and stuff are great, right? Like it's about how you're going to go to California and everything's going to be great. Uh, But then the San Andreas Fault is going to tear it all down. Right, like it's perfect California dream, but also reality. It's oh, it's everything that the people in Isaiah are dreaming of. Uh, we're going to go to California. Everything's going to be great, but then 721 is going to come. I think this is what Natalie was talking about when she wrote the song. 721 is coming, and the Assyrians and Sennacherib, uh, the, the, the fifth, was going to come and, and destroy us all. So uh, San Andreas Fault, put it on the playlist. Uh, then, Matt... Uh, we asked, and the listeners responded. We said, who should we be listening to? Who should we be putting on our Coachella playlist to prep our annotated, annotated, yeah, annotated, 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 I don't know how to say the word anymore. Uh, and a uh, friend of the pod, Tyra, said, Umi. We should be listening to Umi. Oh. Uh, like a friend of a friend is on the is in the band, evidently. They're Saturday. Oh. And they got a nice little song called Remember Me. And nobody ever thinks about poor Thunder, poor Zebedee, losing his children. So this vagabond Jesus is going to try to overthrow the Roman Empire uh, with a stick, you know, like it's uh, poor, poor Zebedee. He's probably singing this Umi song, uh, Remember Me. That's U-M-I. He's saying, Remember Me. Little Coco uh, as well. Rick Wadadame. And finally, Matt, I've got a recommendation. And we don't like to recommend other podcasts because we only want people to listen to this podcast, right? Like you shouldn't. Listen to other ones. Just listen to this one. If you've been through all of them, we've got a big catalog now. You should go back and listen to the old ones. Uh, maybe listen to this one a couple times every week. You should only listen to one podcast. But if you're going to venture out there, Matt, 
and uh, listen to a new podcast, I have a suggestion. It's from, I used to really enjoy the Dinner Party Download with Brendan Francis Noonan, right? He's back with a new podcast called Not Lost. It's like a travel version of it. Uh, And it's really good. You should check it out and listen to it. It made me go find Brendan's like personal uh, Spotify account because I always enjoy the music parts of the Dinner Party Download because they play music at the end. Uh, and he's got great playlists. And so I've been listening to his playlists. And uh, uh, on one of them, I came across a song called Sorry You're Sick uh, by Ted Hawkins from 1982. That is a jam that you should listen to. Uh, and uh, I think Jesus has that playing while he's uh, curing every uh, disease and healing every sickness among the people. Fantastic. Uh, well, I, uh, am in a good mood this week because you two announced their next project, which is their old project. It's all their old songs re redone wow. and rethought. Uh, they have to get the pretty... masters back, right? Is it Taylor Swift thing? <laughs> they got the masters back. They, uh, I believe they always, uh, own their masters, but, um, yeah, they re reworked, uh, I guess is the way to put it. A lot of their songs, the snippets from these songs were in the autumn. Audible, the audiobook version of Bono's memoir. So I've heard snippets of uh, of them already, uh, but th- it's good. It's better than I thought. It was just going to be acoustic versions, which sounds pretty boring. But th- th- these are much more interesting. Uh, and they released one single, "Pride," uh, in advance of MLK Weekend. So the songs mm. of surrender version of "Pride" I'll put on there, and I look forward to sharing more of them when they come out. Songs of Patrick. surrender. That's what Jesus is listening to. I know songs of surrender. Uh, and then uh, an artist that opened for U2 back in the uh, Elevation tour in 2001, PJ Harvey. Uh, she has a song called Down by the Water. Uh, big fish, little fish swimming in the water. And since this story takes place down by the water, I think I'll do that song. Uh, and then finally, I was like, I was looking at that walk by. I was thinking, walk on by. Where have I heard that walk on by? Oh, it's from it's from my James Taylor greatest hits. Walking mm-hmm. Man by James Taylor. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like it. I like it. So what we got? Well, it's been real. It's been real vinyl.